This is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. A recent report issued by the Center for Disease Control shows that across the country, more families have opted out of those yearly vaccines against common childhood illnesses. In Hawaii, the rates have doubled. And we often hear, know your rights, but what are the barriers if you have a disability? We hear about outreach underway to help all members of our community. This month, the National Book Award for Poetry went to a University of Hawaii professor and Pacific Islander, a native of Guam. And we take a trip down memory lane with Santa, Shaka Santa, that is. You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Across the country, the number of families asking for religious or medical waivers from childhood vaccines is at a record high of 3%. In Hawaii, it is double that, at 6%. It's unclear why, but some theorize the pandemic has eroded trust in the system. We talked to Ron Balahadia, head of the state health department's immunization program, about our vulnerability to disease outbreaks. Based on the data that has been provided by CDC, and it's really data that has been collected for each of the jurisdictions, not only just the states, but the, the, we definitely are aware of the exemption rates um, having gone up. And it's something that we've always been concerned about. There was a dip in the exemptions during the COVID time periods of 2020, 2021, uh, 2022 that there was definitely a decrease in exemptions, but then it jumped up. But prior to that, we also had a little bit of a higher rate. Um, and interestingly enough, I think Hawaii has teetered and going up a little bit as far as exemptions. But at this at this time, I think more importantly, uh, one of the one of the things that we're definitely seeing is that when COVID happened, there's definitely there was a lot of politicization and disinformation, right? That has been circulating out not only through social media but through other means, and there, that, of course, contributed to the decreasing public trust in vaccines overall and also other public health interventions. And so I, I think that it really is a contributing factor in, in why we're seeing either higher rates of exemptions requested and also lower rates of vaccinations um, that we're seeing um, based off of the report from CDC. Well, what do we do about this? I mean, because we hate to think that that there are so many of our young people that are unprotected when they could be vaccinated against some of these illnesses. No, great point. And we're we're actually going to be holding a summit or at least pulling together our partner stakeholders um, that have been in the immunization field. So doctors and other entities that have been helping um, to vaccinate our community. And we're going to be holding a summit early sometime next year so that that way we can get all everyone together and just really discuss what are they seeing, what is happening in their clinics, um, what are they hearing from parents, what are the things and the strategies that we could use to employ to really provide confidence back if there was confidence that was no longer there because of, again, misinformation or other things that cause people to not get not only their children vaccinated, but themselves. And so it's really important for us to really pull together as a, as a group and as a community to really understand what are those things that we need to know and then how are we then going to strategize to address those particular issues. We want to make sure that we involve the community in, in, in this process and majority that our, our, our community that we work with on a regular basis is the physician offices that are out there dealing with patients that are communicating with them, asking them questions what can you tell us? What are we seeing, though? Are we seeing more reports of cases? Are there outbreaks of certain diseases where we wouldn't have them before? So luckily, we have not. And that's um, I'm knocking on wood. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. And this is the whole reason why we're concerned, and not only us, but also CDC and also other jurisdictions, is that when rates go down, it's ripe for introduction of disease. And what that means then is that there are more susceptible people that can potentially be exposed 
to the disease. And once you get it within that, then they can potentially expose others. So we're only we're talking about those that can be vaccinated and maybe decide not to. But there are a lot of other people that can't be vaccinated, either younger kids that are too young to get the vaccine or our older seniors that may not have as robust an immune system and therefore are also susceptible. So we have vulnerable populations within our community. And when we do have disease that's introduced, it could potentially spread to others. And then again, we've had outbreaks in the past, mumps, um, hepatitis A, measles. And so we don't want that to be repeated again. And really the main tool that we really have is to ensure that our coverage, immunization coverage rates are high enough to minimize any opportunity for transmission within our community. What are the vaccinations that are required before kids start school every year? So for those that are entering, especially for kindergartners, the vaccines that, that are required are your DTAP, which, which is our diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine. And that's a combination, our polio vaccine, our hepatitis B vaccine, hepatitis A vaccine, MMR or measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and then our varicella vaccine, which is also known as chickenpox. And that's for kindergartners or new entries, new entrants into the school system. We also have a seventh grade entry requirement, and that's for our HPV or human papilloma virus vaccine, our MCV or what we call meningococcal conjugate vaccine, and then our Tdap or our tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis vaccine. So that's those three are for the seventh grade. And so the waivers that are coming in, are they for any particular vaccine or are they just all of them? So the waiver doesn't distinguish what it is for. So there's two exemptions that are provided. One is medical and one is religious. And it doesn't have a listing on the reason as to why they're wanting an exemption. Uh, So we don't have that information on either is it because of one particular vaccine or all vaccines or, or other maybe other reasons as to why they may not want to get vaccinated. Wow. So that's data, though, that could be really helpful. Definitely. And And so we're trying to see how best to get information in that area so that that way we can then hopefully address those reasons as to why they are not and be able to either, is it because of fear of vaccine, because of what may have occurred with their experience with COVID vaccines or other things that may have contributed to that. So again, a lot of misinformation and disinformation that are in the um, social media realm. And so really trying to get a better understanding of that is going to be really helpful in talking to um, not only our physicians and the clinics that they serve with the nurses and and in that area, but also talking to the school health aides and school health assistants uh, to be able to get a little bit more better understanding as to why parents choose to not vaccinate if they have that information. You know, the Department of Health has just issued a a release talking about records. And so what should our listeners know if they want to track down, you know, their um, vaccination records? The Smart Health Card is an opportunity for individuals if they are wanting to get access to their records and be able to then provide that information out. One thing I just want to make sure that's clear is that the data that's in the immunization registry is only specific to what is submitted to the registry by the um, physician's office or the pharmacy who ended who were vaccinating individuals. And so that information, if it's submitted to the registry, that then when a request comes in, that information then can be given to individuals. And so for specifically for the COVID vaccines, there are a few countries that if people are traveling still require some documentation for COVID. So we have a QR code that will list out the most recent vaccine, COVID vaccinations uh, on that QR code. And it will also list down any other vaccinations that are non-COVID, but will not be in that QR code. Our goal is hopefully to expand it so we can include other vaccines in there. But at this 
moment in time, the only access to the QR code will be for COVID vaccinations. And that was Ron Balahadio, who's with the State Health Department's immunization branch. He was talking to us about how the department plans a vaccination summit to understand why families are opting out of mandatory vaccines and to decide how to raise the vaccination rates to protect uh, against the many childhood diseases. There is a list of mandatory shots for school-aged children, including a tuberculosis test and physical exam before starting kindergarten. We'll also have links to find out about that uh, smart card on our website later today. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Lisa Smart, author of Words at the Threshold. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about what we say as we're nearing death. Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Lutheran Church of Honolulu, launching the season with its Advent Choral Procession December 3rd and its Christmas Brass Reimagined Concert December 4th. LCHWelcome.org. Our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat looks at the defense against wildfires. Could it include artificial intelligence going forward? Reporter Thomas Heaton joins us today. Hey, Thomas. Good morning. So, yeah, this is really fascinating, using AI to help um, reduce our fire risk. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, seemingly a, a novel approach, but um, a proven one at that. Um, University of Hawaii researchers have been developing this product using artificial intelligence to better understand and predict wildfires for the past few years. The lead researcher, Syed Bateni, has been leading the project for a number of years as well, having seen the need uh, following a meeting with FEMA five or six years ago. So now the first phase of this research and product development is complete. Um, it really marks the next step and puts the onus, uh, they're trying to put the onus and asking the legislature to help them fund the next phase, which will really um, essentially be the crucial step in helping Hawaii predict wildfires. So, this so is the first phase... Sorry. No, uh, the no. first phase, actually, they were collecting historical fire data and weather data, and they brought that all together, plugged this all into the artificial intelligence, and through machine learning, they've really been able to actually predict fire on uh, wildfire conditions on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing, you know, the innovation that can happen, you know, when we have a problem, but, you know, to be able to forecast our fire risk so that we can hopefully do something to reduce that risk, I mean, that would be so helpful going forward. Mm, absolutely. And the really remarkable thing that has really come from this work from um, Professor Batini is that the specificity that this um, machine learning product can provide so it's able to predict wildfire conditions for areas of 250 square metres. To put that in perspective, that's about one sixteenth of an acre. So that's extremely specific compared to what we have now with the um, wildfire conditions um, forecasting all comes from one place, that is the um, International Airport here in Honolulu. And that doesn't really account for just how complex um, Hawaii's topography and climate conditions are. You know, what's happening at the airport is completely different to what might be happening on the North Shore, let alone Maui, Big Island, Kauai. So true. I mean, we've got these microclimates and, you know, um, areas that are just known for, you know, downdrafts with the winds. And, uh, mm. you know, they're, they're it, yeah, you, you, it's not one, fi one size fits all, right? So to be specific, I'm sure will be really helpful. 
Absolutely. Um, so, so for this coming uh, phase, the second phase of this four-phase plan of rolling out this wildfire risk product, um, Bateni and his colleagues at the University of Hawaii will be asking for about $1.5 million over the next three years to roll this out to really um, help the public understand and also inform the key agencies that respond to fire. Well, you know, this really, again, shows the, you know, possible possibilities for innovation here and maybe even, uh, you know, leading uh, this area, right? We could be a model uh, if, you know, all this comes together and, and uh, is useful data. Mm, absolutely. And w- one of the key things that has made this possible is the development of the Hawaii Mesonet, which is a network of 100 weather stations that will eventually feed information into a centralised location, uh, feed information to the National Weather Service, and then also feed information to the Hawaii Climate Data Portal. And that data portal is really important because that data portal will not only have this wildfire prediction product it will also have drought it will also have flooding it will even things such as predicting conditions for avian malaria you know for those who are working to protect always native birds so there's a lot here that's going on and um, that mesonet as well will need to have some state support Um, 36 of the 100 weather stations have been installed Um, But, of course, they will need to be run and they will need to be maintained. And while the federal government has funded, uh, the federal government and the uh, National Science Foundation have funded the uh, lion's share of the uh, installation cost, um, there will be a need to cover that um, maintenance and operational fee. The data that will be collected will be sold on to the National Weather Service, so they will get reimbursement for that, but it will cost roughly $500,000 well, each year to maintain that. Well, we'll see uh, you know, uh, how the lawmakers uh, fall on this. But thank you so much, Thomas. Yeah, thank you. That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. Read that full story at civilbeat.org. New videos aimed at empowering the deaf, hard of hearing, and the deafblind individuals to advocate for their civil rights are now available on the Hawaii Civil Rights Commission's website. The videos cover issues like employment and housing discrimination, as well as explain the process for filing a complaint with the HCRC. The conversations Russell Subiano talked with the commission's executive director, Marcus Kawatachi, to find out why the videos are important. The Hawaii Civil Rights Commission and the Hawaii State Disability and Communication Access Board recently announced the availability of a series of educational videos for the deaf, hard of hearing, and deafblind persons. You release it on your website and it covers basic civil rights. Can you talk about why these videos were needed? The videos were needed because we like to reach out to people in the community and experts and see you know, really what is needed with regard to civil rights and access to our services. And so one thing that we came across was some people might have a misapprehension that someone who is deaf or hard of hearing or deaf blind would be able to use English captioning and that would be effective communication for them. But that's not always the case. So someone who primarily uses American Sign Language, for example, would not be able to effectively communicate using just English captioning. And so that's one of the things that we thought was a barrier to people who use ASL to be able to utilize their services. And so what do the videos cover? What are some of the topics? So there there are five videos. They're all fairly short, between two and four or five minutes long. And so they cover basic rights and specifically employment discrimination rights, housing discrimination rights. And one of the videos goes into a little bit of detail about how a person would actually go about engaging with our office and filing a complaint. So very hands-on types of videos. The areas that you chose for the video, are, are these areas of life where people who are deaf or hard of hearing or deafblind 
where they experience discrimination the most? Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. And so one thing I'd like to point out is that no matter who a person is, they fall within certain protected categories. Uh, we all do. And so we all could be facing discrimination in various aspects of life. And so one thing that these videos do is to provide just that basic information to folks who, who may be hearing impaired that they have all types of rights. But there also is one specific video that would be more appropriate for those who are deaf or hard of hearing or, or deafblind talking about access to certain services. And so that's something that many folks in the community may not know specifically about is, is those people, you know, who are deaf, hard of hearing, et cetera, like what particular needs do they have and how might they be met? And so that's one of the videos does talk about that. You know, just out of curiosity for somebody who is on the outside and, you know, mm -hmm. don't, I don't have regular interaction with someone who is deaf or, or hard of hearing or deafblind. Do the numbers indicate that this community encounters discrimination on a regular basis or more often than people who are able to see or hear? I would say yes. And that has to do primarily with, as, as mentioned, barriers to access to services. And so it's fairly common for someone, for example, to go to a medical provider and not receive effective communication. So one thing that might be required, particularly with, you know, something that requires some complex instruction, that there might be a requirement that the person or the entity provide an actual interpreter, an ASL interpreter in this case. And so, you know, when that fails, people tend to be upset about it and, and file complaints. And so that's one area where we see that there may be large numbers of complaints filed. This kind of brought up an interview I did recently with the Hawaii Coalition for Immigrant Rights and their work with the people on Maui who have been impacted by the fires. And they mentioned mm -hmm. that the language barriers is really the, the first barrier to overcome. But once you do that, then there's a comprehension barrier that also needs to be addressed. Do you find that that's similar in this community as well? How do you address them understanding what their rights are or how to go about dealing with any discrimination that, that they have experienced? Yeah, I, I do find that that is the case often. And if you just imagine someone coming in, not knowing much about civil rights or how to file a complaint, and throw on top of that barriers having to do with communication. So it could be just, you know, language, efficiency, or in this case, it could be someone whose, you know, sensory situation is, is, is at issue. And so there is that added layer. And so the videos that we have on our website, I mean, we do have videos in different languages, as well as the new ones in ASL. And so that's getting their foot in the door. But once they do contact our agency, if someone needs particular assistance in filling out forms or in receiving information, we make sure that we provide whatever access that that requires. So it could be a live interpreter or just, you know, going in detail with them back and forth about certain things. So that is a challenge and it is something that hopefully we address and other agencies around the state endeavor to address. And you mentioned that you do have videos similar to these in other languages and that those have been up and, and available for some time. At what point did it become important to address people who communicate via American Sign Language? I, mean, I think it's always been important. I think one thing, and I did mention the access to healthcare providers. So that was an initiative that took place, I'm thinking maybe 10 years back, where we did see a particular need for education with healthcare providers and the access they were providing. So that raised that particular segment of the population in our consciousness. And just in general, I think we've always wanted to increase access and break down barriers. And this was an initiative that was started by our former executive director, Bill Hoshijo, and in collaboration with the State Disability Communication Access Board, which we're very happy to collaborate with them because they are the real experts in this field. Can you share how someone who is deaf, hard of hearing, or deafblind, or someone assisting someone that is deaf, hard of hearing, or deafblind, how they can get access to these videos? We have a website. So just to set this up, the agency that I work for is the Hawaii Civil Rights Commission. And so if someone were to go online and just do a search, that would be the first thing that pops up is the Hawaii Civil Rights Commission website. So just access that. 
and it's pretty easy to find in a, in a few places there are links to all these videos and so like i mentioned there are five of them and they're in categories and so whatever issue someone has in mind hopefully they can easily find an appropriate video hopefully we made it very easy for people to access is there anything else that you want to share about this project I think you had mentioned to me before that your office got some help with making these these videos and, and the help that you received is is from someone who is available to help other agencies or, or other states to be able to have informational services like this. Right. Yeah, we couldn't do this work without the help of, of others who are experts in the field. And one of the experts that we had working on this project was actually at the time an employee of the Hawaii Civil Rights Commission as an investigator. And, and her name was Mary Harmon Witted. And so if you take a look at the videos, she is actually the person doing the ASL signing. And she worked on a lot of the content as well. And so just as a, a plug, because Mary's terrific, she does, uh, she, she no longer works for the Hawaii Civil Rights Commission, but she does have her own company, which is called Harmon Witted and Associates LLC. And I did want to just pass that along in case there are people out there, they may be part of a government organization or other type of entity. And if they want to have some sort of initiative of this sort to increase access, you know, please feel free to reach out to me and I can get in touch, get, get the folks in touch with, with Mary and hopefully get something started because I think the more we can provide access to everyone in our community, the better off we all are. Marcus Kawatachi, Executive Director of the Hawaii Civil Rights Commission. Hey, man, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much. And that was Hawaii Civil Rights Commission's Marcus Kawatachi talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. We'll have a link to the videos for the deaf, hard of hearing, and deaf blind community on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors installing Daikin products, that's D-A-I-K-I-N, at CostcoHawaii.com. Club and dance floor hits have their time and place, but Olivia Dean explores the softer side of pop. I love music that fills you up and mm. allows you to reflect and express your emotions to other people. A special IBAM Unplugged conversation with Olivia Dean. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon. Support for HPR comes from the Stephen Inglis Project, presenting Hawaii Winterland, a tour celebrating the music of the Grateful Dead, December 30th and 31st in Kihei and Honolulu. Tickets at rootsmusichawaii.com. For the first time ever, the prestigious National Book Award for Poetry went to a Pacific Islander. Craig Santos Perez is a native of Guam, and full disclosure, he is my nephew. Perez is an English professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. He accepted the award in New York two weeks ago. We talked to him this morning about what that win meant, not just to him as a Chamorro, but to a culture that is often overlooked. In fact, he shared that over the years he was told by publishers there wasn't a market for Pacific Island literature, much less about a tiny island the world knew little about. That night he said he didn't think he would win, and he didn't prepare a speech, and at the last second decided to read from his book entitled Unincorporated Territory. Here's Craig reading the last poem in his winning book during his acceptance speech. I want to share this poem. It's called The Pacific Written Tradition. I returned home to Guam for the first time after 15 years away, 
and visit an English class at one of Guam's public high schools. As I read aloud from my new book, I notice a student crying. What's wrong, I ask. She says, I've never seen our culture in a book before. I just thought we weren't worthy of literature. How many young islanders have dived into the depths of a book only to find bleached coral and emptiness? We were taught that missionaries were the first readers in the Pacific because they could decipher the strange signs of the Bible. We were taught that missionaries were the first authors because they possessed the authority of written words. Today, studies show that Islander students read and write below grade level. It's natural, experts claim. Your ancestors were an illiterate oral people. Don't believe their claims. Our ancestors deciphered signs in nature, interpreted star formations and sun positions, cloud and wind patterns, wave currents, and ocean efflorescence. That's why Master Navigator Papa Mao once said, quote, if you can read the ocean, you will never be lost, end quote. Now let me tell you about Pacific written traditions, how our ancestors tattooed their skin with defiant scripts of intricately inked genealogies, how they carved epics into hard wood with sharpened points, their hands and the pressure and responsibility of memory, how they stenciled petroglyphic lyrics on cave walls with clay, fire, and smoke. So the next time someone tells you our people were illiterate, teach them about our visual literacies, our ability to read the intertextual sacredness of all things. And always remember, if we can write the ocean, we will never be silenced. Thank you. That was Craig Santos Perez reading a poem from his book, Amut unincorporated territory. Amut is the Chamorro word for medicine and his poems center on healing from colonialism, militarization, and environmental injustice. Guam or Guahan is an unincorporated territory of the U.S. where the struggles of political self-determination are still being played out. Residents of the island of Guam are U.S. citizens but don't have a vote in Congress. Here's Craig sharing what the award means to him personally and to the people of Guam. You know, a Pacific Islander author has never won a National Book Award in any category. <laughs> so I just assumed I wasn't going to win, so I didn't prepare a speech or anything. And so when they, you know, announced my book as the winner, I was I was pretty shocked. Was not prepared at all. It took me a couple minutes just to even stand up from the table and to, to walk on stage. And so once I, I started walking and finally got up there, then... You know, the moment kind of hit me and I was able to, uh, you know, just thank the people I wanted to, to thank and to uh, kind of made a last minute decision to, to read the, uh, the last poem from my book. And yeah, it was just really great to be able to, you know, share a little bit about, you know, our culture and, and history to kind of that, that large national audience. Well, you know, I love that the picture on the cover of the book is of you know, Auntie Rose playing bingo, <laughs> which is your grandmother. But maybe share with our listeners, you know, the meaning behind that. Sure. So, uh, so my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, you know, passed away a couple of years ago. And I wanted to write some poems uh, in her honor and to just memorialize and you know, offer respect to her life. And so there are several poems in the book. Uh, about her and one of those poems was a piece I wrote about her uh, going to play bingo with her uh, the last time I saw her when she was alive and you know, I took some pictures of, of that as well and my publisher was kind enough to allow me to uh, feature that photo on the cover of the book so it was really special to you know see her hands and and have her uh, on that screen and with me there in, in spirit because she really uh, did a lot to help raise me when I was growing up in Guam. This is your fifth book and your theme, you talk about, you know, colonialism because being out in Guam, we were just taken over by, you know, the Spanish. Uh, you know, we were under the Japanese for a bit and then the Americans uh, took over, you know, during the Spanish-American War. But talk about the themes that you focus on. 
Yeah, so, you know, throughout my, my career, I've been writing about, you know, the colonial history, politics of Guam, as well as, of course, issues relating to the environment. It's very important to me. Uh, beyond that, you know, I've been writing about, you know, it's kind of the experiences, struggles, traumas, and, and triumphs of, of the Chamorro people that, you know, includes themes such as, you know, migration and diaspora, kind of militarization, and just kind of reconnecting uh, to our culture as well. And so those things kind of run throughout my books and, you know, woven into those larger themes are, you know, stories of, of my grandparents, of, of family, as well as of uh, just contemporary issues related to, to both climate change and, you know, one big issue in Guam and, and the Marianas, which is uh, the military buildup, which has been happening for the last 15 years or so. Well, you know, as I have been doing research and reading the accounts of explorers out in the Pacific. You know, I have come across a lot of the illustrations, you know, dating back to the, you know, 15, 1600s. And I love that you use some of that imagery in your books, pictures of the laddie stones, which are, you know, structures upon which we built our hollies. Uh, on top, our huts, and and the canoe history, right? Because we were the one culture that the Europeans wrote about this idea of wayfinding and navigation, and they talked about, you know, the different types of canoes that the Chamorros had and, and the speed at which they were able to go to the Philippines using the proas. I mean, I don't know what it was like for you when you started exploring all of that history. Yes, I had a similar feeling um, as I started to research and, and dive into the archives. You know, I was really struck by, you know, these archival images of, of canoes as well as of, you know, ancestral architecture. And, you know, of course, I was uh, really interested in, you know, that period of, of not only colonial history, but of course, kind of pre-colonial Chamorro culture. And, you know, in my poetry, I tried to weave together, you know, the past with the present. And, you know, in that way, we can kind of, you know, create a, a more maybe spiraling or, or circular sense of time in which, you know, the past is, is always with us and the present, you know, of course, is, is shaped by the past. And, you know, for me, thinking about the canoe as a, as a symbol of navigation has been a very important metaphor. Just in my own life, trying to, you know, navigate, you know, being a writer, but also what it means to be Chamorro, what it means to, to migrate and to leave home. And, you know, of course, what it means to, to also uh, be an activist and to, you know, kind of imagine different features for, for Guam and for the Pacific. And because, you know, you teach at the University of Hawaii, uh, you know, what has the experience of the whole Native Hawaiians been and what kind of influence has that uh how has that affected, you know, your writing when you see some of these same issues come up, you know, whether it's in Guam or here in Hawaii? Yeah, so I was fortunate to, to live in Hawaii for, for 12 years and, you know, got to know, you know, Hawaiian history and culture uh, more intimately and to kind of recognize, you know, both the shared history of U.S. colonialism as well as to, you know, recognize, you know, many cultural similarities uh, between Chamorros and Hawaiians as well as, of course, shared struggles against, you know, things like militar militarization. And, you know, beyond Hawaii, of course, uh, across the Pacific, there, you know, there are many similar issues. And, of course, one of the major ones being, being climate change today. And so, you know, through my work, I tried to map out those connections and to express my, my own solidarity uh, with the Hawaiian people and, of course, with other Pacific Islanders. And I understand that you've got another book in the works. Yes, I have another uh, poetry collection coming out next year. It has similar themes where you know, I have a, a section of poems about about Guam and, and Chamorro experience. I have another a section in the book that makes connections between Guam and other parts of the Pacific. And then there are some poems as well that, you know, make kind of global connections between the Pacific and, and Native America or things happening in Palestine and as well as kind of around the world. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to that book. It's titled Mutiny. And so it takes on similar themes of, of navigation and politics. And I remember going to the UN building there in New York and seeing one of your early books there. And I was like, wow, that's pretty awesome. Yes, I was able to, to go 
to the United Nations uh, New York headquarters, I believe in 2008, where I was able to present testimony about Guam's colonial history and some of the impacts of militarization. And I testified in front of the Fourth Committee, which is a committee on decolonization, along with a couple other uh, Chamorro activists. And as you know, there's a long history of Chamorros going to the United Nations. And, you know, of course, uh, many have continued to do so as just another um, platform through which to advocate for our, our international right to self-determination and, and sovereignty. And talk about poetry, why you chose, you know, this genre to find your story and, and tell the story of Guam. I started writing poetry more seriously when, when I was in high school. This is when my family first migrated from Guam to California. And at that time, poetry became a, a space for me to express my, my thoughts and emotions about leaving home, <laughs> about feeling really, really homesick, and, you know, trying to stay connected to, to our culture. You know, I just found poetry to be a very uh, powerful kind of creative form through which to to articulate emotion. And, you know, as I became an adult and learned more about, you know, colonialism and, you know, became more radicalized, then I started, you know, discovering that poetry is also a very powerful form through which to express political opinions as well as a way to, to honor, you know, my ancestors and, and where I come from. You were there on that big stage sharing Guam's story. How do you hope your win will resonate with the younger generation? Yeah, that's an important question to me because, you know, when I first started publishing my work, that was, you know, kind of my mission is really to inspire, you know, other Pacific Islander authors because at that time I was receiving a lot of rejections from publishers because, you know, they said they would never be able to sell my book because, one, because they've never heard of Guam or Chamorro people, and, and two, because there's really no market uh, for Pacific Islander literature at the time. And so, you know, for me being on that stage and, and receiving the National Book Award, you know, I hope will inspire other Pacific Islanders to know that, you know, there are, there are people interested, you know, in our stories and that, you know, that it's important for us to continue to to tell our stories and, and histories and cultures, you know, to not only inspire our own peoples, but also, of course, to raise awareness uh, on a national and, and global audience about our stories. And I know you have mentioned about how much it means to you to share our history with your kids, you know, with your daughters, knowing that we have come from this tiny island out in the middle of the Pacific and you can make your mark out there. Anything else you want to add about that? When they're older, they'll, they'll read my works and learn more about that part of their genealogy. And, uh, you know, they could hopefully learn more about about their their grand, their tomorrow grandparents as well, since I tell a lot of my grandparents' life stories in the book. And, um, you know, unfortunately, they, they didn't get to meet all of their uh, great-grandparents. And, you know, because they live in Hawaii, so, uh, you know, it would be nice for them to, to learn you know, more about that other part of, of their ancestry and, and maybe someday I'll be able to uh, take them both to Guam where they can connect to that part of their culture as well. All right. Well, Craig Santos Perez, thank you so much. I have learned a little bit more about you uh, that I didn't know <laughs> as an auntie, but thank you so much. We're so proud of, uh, of your accomplishment. Uh, well, thank you, auntie. Your pride and, you know, the, the pride that other folks have, have said they felt uh, when when I did accept the award, you know, means the world to me. And so thank you for, for this opportunity. All right. Aloha and Sidhu Masi. Sidhu Masi. And Sidhu Masi in tomorrow means God bless you. That was UH professor Craig Santos Paris, winner of the National Book Award for Poetry. Uh, the book is a collection of poems about Guam entitled I'm an Unincorporated Territory. Sometimes the only way to heal a relationship is to say, I'm sorry. So why is it so hard to do? One of the things that 
happens when you apologize is actually you, you are relinquishing a bit of power and control in that situation. The Psychology of Apologies, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7, following Living on Earth. This holiday season, may we take the time to pause, reflect, and give thanks. If HBR is a public service you're thankful for, we invite you to support your future listening with a monthly financial gift. With our community pitching in, $10 a month makes a difference you can hear. Give today at hawaiipublicradio.org. weekend here on Oahu, we kick off the 39th year of Honolulu City Lights. The familiar characters, Tutumele and Shaka Santa, loom large, perched near the fountains outside of Honolulu Hale. As I passed there recently, I couldn't help but think of two familiar faces tied to the festive event who we lost recently. There were two bright lights who brought the festivities alive. Carol Costa was the city's public information officer who spearheaded the event under the orders of then-Mayor Frank Fossey. She died last month. And earlier, we also lost a gentle soul who stood in as Shaka Santa for some three decades. Former Transportation Director Joe Magaldi played the part. We caught up with him during the pandemic to chat about his memories. The longtime marathon runner was in his 90s. Services were held in his memory at Punchbowl Cemetery earlier this year. And so in the spirit of the holidays, we rebroadcast a little conversation we had with Shaka Santa about what it was like bringing joy to this season for so many decades. Bet you know someone who has a picture on Shaka Santa's lap. Here's Joe. It was so much fun. And, you know, if it wasn't for Frank Fossey, I never would have been the only Santa Claus at City Hall, which I've been for many, 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 many years. But it was a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoyed being with the people, with the kids, uh, with the seniors, and we had a lot of fun. Do you remember the day when Mayor Fossey asked you to be Santa? I was outside looking at the Mr. and Mrs. Santa that had been displayed at City Hall for a long time. He came over and he says, Joe, yes, Santa, that's it. Don't give me any. We'll just be Santa. And I, said, I said, yes, sir, Mr. Mayor. And then I became Santa. And I was the only Santa at City Hall for, gee, something like 30, maybe 40 years. And uh, what they really liked about it, the people, was the bare legs. They couldn't believe a Santa with bare legs. Yeah, you got to wear jams, right? Yeah, because <laughs> I always wore shorts and, and the bare legs and uh, flip-flops. Uh, it, it was just so much fun because people enjoyed Santa so much, and they couldn't believe they'd have a Santa Claus with bare legs. Now, you have watched the City Lights event grow over the decades, uh, and this year it's just, it's going to be different, you know, because we, we worry about COVID, and you're on an age. Being Santa out in the community puts you at risk. The, the thing is, uh, I hate to see City Lights are, are not going to be really anything at all this year, and it's because of COVID, which is unfortunate. People miss Santa because Santa always tried to help people. Uh, that was the main purpose of being Santa Claus helping people, make them happy, and wish them happy holidays. And because you've been Santa at uh, Honolulu Holiday for so many years, I'm sure a lot of those little kids who had pictures came back as adults with their kids. Some people still have the pictures, and sometimes they'll send one to me. They haven't done it this year, but they sometimes... But the seniors, are the, to me, as I mentioned before, the senior citizens in Santa Claus were fantastic. And we, I had so much fun with them. People waited in line forever just to come up and sit by Santa or be behind him. They, they were so affectionate to Santa, and Santa tried to do it in return, so maybe I didn't do it right all the time, but we, we just had so much fun uh, enjoying Christmas every year. Uh, they looked forward. They waited in line to just come and see Santa have a picture taken. And you've never seen so many kids waiting outside. And then the seniors. The seniors in their wheelchair, they're waiting. I think I brought joy into kids and the seniors uh, on a continual basis 
because I enjoyed being Santa Claus. Well, I love, you know, the Christmas tree display there in the courtyard, you know, how each department would uh, compete. Gosh, I, I, I think I remember, you know, we had a, a, a tree, I think it was in your department, right? Transportation services. Didn't yeah, you have that's right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> buses and rail? That's right. <laughs> uh, and, and the thing is, this year we're not going to have, we're going to have some, but not very much. The other thing I enjoyed doing was uh, the horse and buggy, because uh, I used to take that by City Hall and downtown and back uh, every night for about two hours. And that was a lot of fun because people would stop you and take pictures as you walked along, not walked along, as you were. Uh, driven along in, in the in the, uh, the the various things that we did, and we had a lot of fun there too. If Fosse was alive, we'd probably do it. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're probably right. He would. He would. That's how he was. I mean, you know, uh, of any mayor and all the mayors, I I can't say uh, other than he was the best, and also be the best mayor for one Well. He he liked you, I think, because uh, you're Italian, right? <laughs> <laughs> My grandparents came from uh, Sicily, and then they went up into uh, Italy. And but uh, they were they were pretty good guys. They weren't mafia. Well, uh, you know, I know it's probably going to be hard for the Fossey family too, because that was something that the whole family enjoyed this tradition that uh, Mayor Fossey started. I still get. Emails from Joyce. I just got another one yesterday wishing me, you know, Merry Christmas and ho, 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 Santa. <laughs> I would like to wish everybody the, the best Christmas ever. It's very unfortunate that we can't be that close and we have to be separated by a plastic barrier or what have you. But uh, I think everybody, I uh, wish them the best Christmas ever and Santa Claus will always be around. Yeah, Chaka Santa, we certainly appreciate uh, all the time and uh, good feeling that you brought down there to Honolulu Hale, and, and thank you for sharing your memories. Okay, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And again, hey, Mary Kalikimaka. Oh, that was Shaka Santa, Joe Magaldi, recalling how his time at the annual Honolulu City Lights were among his favorite memories at Honolulu Hale. This year's tree lighting and light parade kicks off on Saturday. So when you pass by Shaka Santa and Tutumele, think of our dedicated public servants, Carol Costa and Joe Magaldi, and thank them for the memories for nearly four decades. That does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we bring you a Hanaho show on the invasive little fire ant. Give us some feedback. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Look for the Conversation uh, podcast at your favorite podcast store or online at hawaiipublicradio.org. And before we go, the National Weather Service has issued a flash flood warning for the islands of Maui and Hawaii Island until 1.30 this afternoon. Please use extreme caution on the roadways. Hawaii Public Radio will keep you updated on the conditions throughout the entire state. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.